Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to Martin Luther King Jr. here on the Reset Podcast. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Martin Luther King Jr., you know his face, you know his voice, and you know that famous speech, I Have a Dream, delivered on August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. King was a leader, a figurehead, some might even say a prophet of the civil rights movement. And you know that too, but do you know the man behind the myth? A new biography out today from Chicago author Jonathan Eig tells the full story of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., In it, we get the radical king who called for, among other things, guaranteed basic income. We get the problematic king, the plagiarist, the philanderer. And we get an insider view of what King was thinking and feeling at key moments in his life, from his formative years at Morehouse College to his time in Birmingham jail to the days leading up to his assassination in 1968. The book is called King, A Life. Huge undertaking, Jonathan. My first thought was, I mean, what don't we already know about MLK, right? What else could Jonathan possibly reveal here in this book? But after reading it, I realized, okay, there's a lot more to this man. So did the task overwhelm you at all initially? It scared me for sure. Yeah. I never felt overwhelmed because I had all the time in the world. It it took me six years to write this book. And if I needed 10 or 12, I would have taken it. Um, and I would have been happy spending that much time with Dr. King and diving into his life. So um, frightened, yes, at the enormity of the project and the, and the importance of it, because the reason I undertook this is that we've turned King into a national monument and a holiday, and in the process of doing that, he deserved those um, those re- those recognitions, of course. But in the process of, of doing that, we've lost sight of him as a man. Right. We've lost sight of what he really went through, how he struggled emotionally, how he had doubts about himself— and I think he comes out as a much more powerful figure and a more um, inspiring figure when you acknowledge that that he was human. Tell us about the research that went into the project, because it was extensive, and you made use of a lot of source material that had never been tapped before. I found a lot of new material, surprisingly large amount of material that other scholars hadn't found, just because a lot of time had gone by, really, since the last big King biography. But the first thing I did was interviews. Uh, I realized that there were still dozens of people who knew King very well, who were still with us, but they were old, and I had to hurry. So I began interviewing people like Dick Gregory and Harry Belafonte, John Lewis, uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Mm -hmm. Andrew Young, as fast as I could, traveling the country, not just famous people, too, but people who grew up with him in the neighborhood on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, his barber from Montgomery. So what an opportunity. And then once I started that process, I began diving into the archives and looking for new materials that— 
had eluded previous scholars. We're going to get more into this later, Jonathan, but when King was at the height of his power, he would talk with the president of the United States, with the attorney general. At the same time, though, he was being heavily surveilled by the FBI. Just give us a sense of what that was like. King, because he was a man of God, because he read the Bible and actually believed it, he thought people would deal with him in the same sincere way, the same morality that he brought to the to the table. And some people would say he was naive because he didn't understand that politicians didn't work that way. He didn't understand that he could have these really meaningful discussions with President Lyndon Johnson mm-hmm. and that the same day President Johnson was on the phone with Hoover talking about the go- gossiping about King's private life. He didn't understand that, that Johnson was spreading these rumors um, and really undermining King's reputation, really trying to destroy his marriage and divide the civil rights activist community. King uh, still somehow managed to to maintain faith in, in other people in the process, even as our as his own government was seeking to destroy him. Which must have been so difficult at the time. The pressure is unbelievable. Um, and that's why I think he did suffer. He was suffered. He, he was hospitalized numerous times for exhaustion. Coretta referred to it as depression. Mm-hmm. Reverend Jackson called it depression. Um, it, it's not as if he was immune to this, um, to these attacks that he was facing. And he wasn't always known as Martin Luther King Jr., right? Insider, insiders called him uh, Little Mike, Michael, ML, Runt. <laughs> when and how did he become Martin Luther King Jr.? You know, he was born Mike, Little Mike, because his father was Michael King Sr., and his father changed his name to Martin Luther King Sr., and then changed his son's name along the way. But even when he went to college, he was still introducing himself as Mike. He was not um, expecting to or felt like he needed a fancier name, right. but he was a very ambitious kid. He skipped several grades in school. At Morehouse, he's you know two, three years younger than, than most of his classmates. Same at at seminary and same at Boston University. And he becomes an intellectual. He becomes, you know, really fascinated with trying to be more than his father. His Mm -hmm. father was a country preacher, and King fancied himself as a much more intellectual preacher. And he began to, and what his first first nickname um, as a teenager was Tweed, because he dressed like a college professor even as a teenager. Um, But he, you see this sense of ambition growing within him. And that's when um, the name starts to shift, and he begins introducing himself first as ML and yeah. then Martin Luther King Jr. eventually. In his early years, you, you write in the book, quote, Martin Luther King Jr. had the good luck to be born and raised on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta. Sweet Auburn, as area residents called it, was a magical place partially buffered from the racist rituals and rules that applied across most of the South. So you've talked a little bit already about King's childhood, but I'm curious, from King's perspective— what would you say it was like at the time being a black child in this segregated world? Well, he was buffered not only by Auburn Avenue, but by Ebenezer Baptist Church, where his father was the pastor and where his mother was the musical director. So he grew up in this little bit of a bubble. And many of his friends and colleagues who I interviewed said that they felt like King was not as badly bruised by racism as so many others because he had this fairly privileged um, childhood. That's not to say he didn't know. Of course he knew what was going on in the rest of the world, and, and he faced plenty of his own insults when he went shopping downtown in Atlanta and couldn't try on shoes um, when his father was pulled over by police for no reason. So he certainly saw these things, but compared to most black Southerners at the time, he was pretty lucky. Yeah. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Chicago author Jonathan Eig about his new biography of Martin Luther King Jr. out today. It's called King, A Life.
Uh, I want to talk now about his emergence as a leader in the civil rights movement, right? His nonviolent approach, which we hear so much about, and how he began to call out structural racism in, in society, kind of in a way that feels like what we hear today. How he got there, though, is also fascinating. Talk about his years at Morehouse College and uh, Crozer Theological Seminary. Well, he went to school really thinking that he wanted to be a lawyer or perhaps even a doctor. Uh, He wanted to break away from the tradition of his father. Like so many of us, we want to be different from our parents. But it kept pulling him in. It kept pulling him back. And he always felt like whatever he did, it had to be working toward advancement of equality and justice. You know, he grew up at a time when this was really starting to percolate. Percolate. It's pre-civil rights, uh, of course, but it's yeah. it's it's in the air everywhere. And his father and many other black preachers are are have an advantage in trying to fight racism because they can't be fired from their jobs. So eventually, King is pulled back to the church, and by the time he's um, at Morehouse, he decides and tells his parents that that he's committed to a to a career in the church. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be a pastor like his father. And, and that's really when he finds himself. He finds his identity as, as an intellectual, as, as a, a theologian, and as an activist. He, he brings those three things together in a way that really nobody had before. You tell a great story from his years there about how he falls in love with a white woman named uh, Betty Moitz. What happened? At Crozier, King fell in love with a woman whose mother was the, um, was the cook for the college. And Harry Belafonte told me that Betty Moitz was King's one true love, that he never stopped talking about her. And he wanted to marry her. He went um, to his father and went to one of his a white, one of his black mentors, um, J. Pius Barber, who was a preacher um, near Crozier, and asked what they thought. And they said, it's a terrible idea. It will destroy your career. You'll have no chance to lead a church anywhere mm. in the South, possibly not anywhere in the, nor- in the North. And King, after much really... Um, confusion and uncertainty, decided to break up with Betty. But um, he, of course, you know, soon, a few years later met and married Coretta, who was uh, uh, the love of his life in in many, many ways, but mm-hmm. he never forgot Betty Moitz. You also uh, talk about, uh, you know, what you learned about cheating uh, in that relationship, affairs that went on before and, and uh, during his marriage to Coretta Scott King. Why did you include those stories? I think, first of all, King is in my opinion, the greatest American, period. And we can handle the fact that he's not perfect. In fact, we need to embrace the fact that our heroes don't have to be perfect because if we expect perfection, then nobody can ever rise to greatness. Uh, no one will take those, take those positions of leadership. So the other thing is that I think if, I don't, if I'm not honest about King's flaws, you're not going to believe what I write about his, about his assets. Mm-hmm. So that's important. And the fact is that King struggled with fidelity his entire life. Um, even when he was a teenager and dating girls in high school and college, he struggled. And one of the things I was shocked to find um, in a tape that Coretta made um, while working on her memoir soon after her husband's death, she said that she discovered King was cheating on her while they were still dating, before they were married. Mm. And she accepted it. She moved on. And um, she had to deal with that throughout their marriage. You know, it's amazing how quickly it is that King gets swept up in this civil rights struggle later on, right? Uh, One day he's this young 25 or 26-year-old preacher, new to a post in Montgomery, Alabama, and then next he's this voice of a movement, which is is massive. Um, Let's skip to December 5th, 1955. This was the start of the Montgomery bus boycott. That would eventually go on for over a year. What started it? 
as everybody knows, um, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. Of course, before that, the city was in, was, was in turmoil. Um, black bus riders were furious that this was a rolling theater of indignation, that they were treated badly for years on these buses by white passengers, by white bus drivers, and finally mm-hmm. they couldn't take any more. And what was King's role in this lead-up? King was asked just simply to be the spokesman. They needed somebody to stand up that night and make a speech to try to encourage people to stay off the buses the next day. They really didn't know if this was going to be a one-day protest, a, f- a few days. Nobody thought it would go on for a year. And most people in Montgomery had never heard of Martin Luther King at that point. He was new to town, and that's partly why he was chosen, because he, didn't, he hadn't made any enemies yet. And they thought everybody will give him a chance. Um, but he, he gets up there and makes this speech that you can still hear. It's on YouTube. It's riveting. And what's beautiful about it is that King finds his voice in a way. He calls on God. He calls on con- the Constitution. He says, we can make this a world a better place, that we, our suffering, can redeem this nation. And and that's when people begin to follow him, and, and really almost instantly he becomes a national figure. Yeah, that speech, uh, as you write, is simply electric, right? And um, he starts the speech recounting the day's events. He's praising Rosa Parks. Then he says, you know, my friends, there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. I get chills right now just just reading that, uh, Jonathan. I do want our listeners to have a chance to hear a key moment in the speech. The audio quality is not going to be the best, but uh, let's listen to about a minute or so. So it's a little hard to hear at the end there, but King ends with, if we are wrong, justice is a lie. Love has no meaning. And we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now from 1955, let's fast forward to 1968, to King's I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. 
Because I've been to the mountaintop. Not on mine. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That's Martin Luther King Jr. addressing sanitation workers on strike in Memphis, Tennessee on April 3rd, 1968. The next day, King was dead at the age of 39, assassinated by a sniper's bullet. Between those two speeches we just heard, King went to jail dozens of times fighting for civil rights, battled segregation across the South, worked to galvanize public opinion in the North, won a Nobel Peace Prize, and became a figure known around the world. Jonathan, after the year-long bus boycott in Montgomery, we started to see a domino effect around the South with more efforts at desegregation. What happened next, and what role did Martin Luther King Jr. play? He instantly realized that this was an opportunity to spread this kind of protest around the country and to wake white America to the fact that something had to be done and that he was at the tip of the spear. He was in a position to lead, but he had no idea how to do that. Nobody had. There was no blueprint for this. So he began really uh, by forming the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership um, Conference, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out how can we make Montgomery happen elsewhere. And then he began just dropping in on protests, looking for a chance to try to make magic happen again. It didn't work. It didn't go well at all. And it wasn't until others picked up on the inspiration. You know, by now, King was, was a legend. There were comic books that were, that were distributed around the South. Um, kids were reading about the Montgomery bus boycott. So you start to get other people protesting in their own ways, um, riding the buses, freedom riders, mm-hmm. uh, sitting in at lunch counters. And King becomes kind of the lightning rod. Whenever he comes to support one of these movements, it explodes. So he realizes that his great power is in his voice, in his ability to help focus the nation's attention and to present this moral conundrum, to ask the nation, who are we? What can we be? Is this who we really are? Are we going to allow this segregation, this racism to continue? And he becomes the moral voice of the nation at age 26. To your point, two days after the end of that bus boycott, someone fired a shotgun at King's house. Uh, Talk about that effort to, to just dismantle segregation and how it led to white violence. Again and again, right? I'm talking shootings, bombings, lynchings, rapes, stories really that are very difficult to read. We talk about the positive side of it, about how King moved the nation and forced the nation to reconsider its ways, its racism and its segregations and its its laws that kept people shackled. But what we forget sometimes is that his emergence also provoked an angry response from the people who had an interest in preserving the status quo, who had an interest in maintaining the white power structure that had been so effective and so prosperous for them for so long. And that the way they intended to do that, the way they intended to cling to their power, was by, by spreading fear, 
by trying to scare black people so they wouldn't protest. And that includes scaring King, locking him up in jails, taking him to state penitentiaries where everyone knew men disappeared. So there was a, one of the beautiful things that you see in Montgomery and in Albany, Georgia, and in Birmingham and Selma over and over again is people saying, black people saying, we're not scared anymore. Dr. King has given us a, a way to march forward, a way to put ourselves on the line. If he's not scared, we're not scared. Hmm. Yet here we are. I'm going to fast forward to the, the present day and thinking of, of violence that black people experienced back then, as you, as you just described, and the, the political and racial violence that we're seeing in society now. I'm thinking just a year ago, I think almost to the date, a racist mass shooting in Buffalo, New York at a supermarket. There's been a rise in hate crimes. January 6th, we know what happened there. What goes through your mind? There's a thread that runs through history, and there's a feeling that the people who are scared of change are trying to shut it down. They're trying to preserve their vision of what America should be, and they do that by trying to scare folks. I mean, that's what happened at Charlottesville, too. Yeah. It's, a, it's a protest that's meant to create a backlash against change. And, and unfortunately, you know, they've had some success. Those, those forces um, those, uh, have had some success in spreading fear. I mentioned earlier the the forces that King was up against included the law enforcement arm of the federal government. Why did FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover have it out for him? And is it fair to say that the FBI essentially tried to make his life a living hell? Oh, that's more than fair to say. First of all, the answer to why is simply race. Because he was a black man. He was a black man. And if if, if King was successful in leading America to change, if King was successful in rallying black Americans and white Americans to join him in forcing a reimagination of what America should be, that threatened Hoover's vision. Hoover's vision was preservation of the status quo, white Christian nationalism. And anything but that was frightening to him. Communism was what scared him to begin with. That's what got him interested in King in the first place, because he thought maybe King was a communist, because he had certain former communists within his circle of advisors. But when it became clear that King had no communist influence uh, within on, on his work, mm-hmm. Hoover s- just switched tactics and began attacking King's personal life, um, investigating his extramarital affairs, leaking that information to the press, leaking it to Congress, members of Congress, um, getting the White House to turn on King. And his his job, his, his interest was not just in embarrassing King. His, in, his interest was in destroying King, destroying the movement dividing and conquering black leaders so that they would not be able to affect the kind of change on society that they wanted and that Hoover feared. So King and his fellow civil rights activists, they were up against a lot when it comes to dealing with police at uh, the, both the local county and state level. King complained, and this is really what, what got Hoover so upset in the first place. He complained that the FBI was entirely staffed by white agents in the South and there were, and those white agents were in league with the local police departments, and that the civil rights marchers were not getting any protection from the FBI. They were not getting any help, and in fact, the FBI was undercutting their efforts. King had no idea just how much the FBI was really undercutting his efforts. So I think that um, he identified a simple truth that law enforcement was more concerned with punishing black people than it was with protecting them, mm-hmm. and that put him even more at risk. We opened this uh, segment with a couple of minutes of Martin Luther King's I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. I'm going to guess that for many listeners, that was the first time they had heard that. 
King's story, I think, often gets boiled down, uh, boiled down to something like, you know, he was a great man, believed in nonviolence, and he had a dream. Right. Why do you think that is? We start teaching King in kindergarten, and we don't get much more sophisticated beyond that kindergarten lesson. And I think the fundamental reason is that we're scared to really look at what he had to say and to listen to his actual words and to read his books. Even now with all that's happening? Absolutely. He was a radical. And we're not comfortable with that. We prefer to talk about judging people by the content of their character. We are misusing and abusing King's words. We're using him to promote whatever beliefs we want to make them seem like they had to say. But the truth is that he was calling on America to make fundamental change, to think about how we can restructure our society and our economy to be more fair and more just. And it was all coming from the Bible. This is not, you know, he was not taking this from, um, you know, some, cap, from some, some communist doctrine. This came from the Bible and the Constitution. But it scared people because it was challenging the status quo and that somebody was going to have to give up power. And that's what King began to say. You know, it didn't cost anybody anything to give us voting rights in the South. It didn't cost anybody anything to let us ride the buses. Now I'm coming for you. Mm. I want you to sacrifice you have to give something up. White America has to give something up to make black Americans whole. Tell us more about the events that led up to the I've been to the mountaintop speech. Well, King was deeply frustrated by that time in his life. He was scared. He felt like he was losing power. His popularity had fallen dramatically. You know, in the early mid-60s, he was one of the most respected men in America. All the Gallup polls showed him up there with presidents. But by the late 60s, by 67, 68, he was off those polls entirely. His name didn't even appear anywhere on the list because, in part, the FBI had done such a good job of challenging his reputation, mm-hmm. but also because he couldn't, it felt like he couldn't please anybody. He wasn't liberal enough for the new, younger black activists. He was too liberal for conservatives, and even many white liberals who had supported him for years were uncomfortable because now he was saying, you know what? Segregation in Chicago is just as bad as Birmingham. Public school segregation, housing, income inequality, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, you've got it just as bad as the South. And when he did that, he lost a lot of his support. Funding began to dry up. So by the time he gets to Memphis in support of the sanitation workers, we can hear him on the phone because his lines are tapped. We can hear him saying to his advisors, I feel like I'm running out of rope here. I feel like people aren't listening to me anymore. Mm. And your heart goes out to him because he won't give up, but he feels really misunderstood and, and really uncertain about what the future holds. One one part of that speech that uh, gets me every time, you can hear King's deep down feeling that he was going to be killed. Uh, He says, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. This was a feeling that he had for years, wasn't it? Yeah. When you've been stabbed in the chest, when your home's been bombed and you had shotguns fired at your front door, And you know the FBI is trying to destroy you and spreading the message that this guy has to be taken out at any cost. It's it's not paranoid to think that that your life may not go on much longer. And his friends who I interviewed said that he was indeed really morbid in those last years. He really felt like he was running out of time. Mm. And um, at the same time, I have to say, you know, what inspires me the most about King is, you know, he could have peeled back. He could have said, I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm going to Europe for a year to get my head together and write a book. But he didn't. He just threw himself in deeper and deeper. I feel like unless you were one of those closest to him, you you wouldn't know that. You would see the confident side. Yeah, the public image was always there. He was always, you know, beautifully dressed and composed and and always positive. At least in public, he never gave up hope. 
Now, um, we know that King's assassination was, of course, tragic and a truly heartbreaking moment. I would rather have you talk about the impact that uh, King's words and actions had on this country before I let you go. So, I mean, leave us with your final thoughts. What was his impact in the few years after his death, Jonathan? And how are we still feeling that impact today? Wow, it's hard to summarize, but, you know, we see a few positive things come right after his death. We see the Fair Housing Act passed, and I don't think that would have happened um, if not for King, and and unfortunately, if not for his assassination. We start to see um, the civil rights movement falling apart without him to lead it. It morphs a little bit. It leaves the streets and moves to the ballot box, and we start to see more black candidates being elected to office, especially in, in, in positions of mayors in big cities around the country. So we see black power changing, but at the same time, kids like me growing up in the 70s um, are not part of that same sense of, you know, it, we've become a more selfish culture in a way. People are not sacrificing in the way they did mm-hmm. when King was leading. And I think that we're still looking for a way to get people to march behind a leader, to feel like we are united in a cause. And I think that's where King's voice is really still needed today more than ever. I realize we, we haven't uh, talked too much about the letter from Birmingham jail or his speech, The Other America, for instance. Uh, But just in the few seconds we have left here, Jonathan, which of King's writings or speeches would you say to our audience are must-reads or must-listens? Well, I'd love for people to go back and read his actual words. And and my favorite speech is the Beyond Vietnam speech, which he gave on uh, exactly a year before his assassination on April 4th, 1967. And even though he didn't write it, he, he, he barely had time to read it before he delivered it. I think it's the greatest summation of his life's work, because what it says is that it's not enough to fight for a cause. You've got to go back to what you really believe in and yeah. think about how that applies to everything in life. And that's why it was never enough for him to fight for voting rights or integration. He had to take it and attack poverty and attack war because that's what the Bible told him to do. This episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Dan Tucker and edited by Meha Ahmed and Ethan Schwab. To hear more great interviews like this one, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you could take a second to just give us a rating and review, we would really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.